This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. It's Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36. This, of course, is continuing in 24, part of Jesus' Olivet Discourse, words spoken to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, just to the east of Jerusalem, just outside from the temple there. And Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating, drinking, and marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware, until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would open to us, to our minds, to our hearts, this portion of your word, that we would be instructed by it, that we would be able to feed on it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. One of the great ironies of church history is how frequently someone has predicted the year, the month, the week, the day, the time of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. What could be more futile? What could be more pointless? What could be more clearly 
wrong in light of a passage such as that that is before us that takes pains over and over to emphasize the fact that no one knows when Jesus is going to return except God the Father himself. Jesus makes that plain here before us concerning that day and hour. Now, as we've studied Matthew 24, we've noted that Jesus is answering his disciples' questions both with an eye toward what would happen to the city of Jerusalem under the judgment of God, but also what would bring about the final judgment, the end of the age. Probably for Jesus' disciples, at least in their thinking at that time, that event was essentially one and the same. Uh, They later learned otherwise, and we certainly know otherwise, and Jesus knew otherwise and is telling them here about each of those events. But when he says concerning that day and hour, it seems very clear, given what follows, that he is describing his second coming. He is describing uh, his return in glory, his return in judgment, that will in fact bring about the end of human history as we have known it. Now, Jesus says concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Fairly broad. And we think, humanly speaking, nobody knows. But he says not even the angels of heaven know when that event will occur. But then he says something that has really surprised people uh, over the years. Nor the Son. In fact, uh, later scribes must have been surprised by that because there are some manuscripts where that phrase is missing. Maybe they thought, well, surely Jesus would have known. However, some of the best and earliest manuscripts actually do have that phrase. Mark has that phrase, nor the Son, in his version of this account. And uh, that's fairly uniform, the textual evidence there. It's actually far more likely... uh, that, uh, that because of the surprising nature of it, that it might have been a scribe might have thought, well, that can't be right, and omitted it uh, because it's difficult. It's far more likely to be original. And certainly uh, it, it's very clear in Mark uh, that that's part of what Jesus said. And here it is in Matthew in the best manuscripts. And so I think it's entirely reasonable that Jesus would say that he himself does not know the time of his return. And we say, well, he was God. How could he not know? Well, in his human nature, he was in submission to the will of his father. And that will included knowing those things that the father desired that he should know, but not knowing other things. And we see examples of that in Jesus' ministry. For example, in the crowd, a woman comes up and touches him, and Jesus says, who touched me? Asking a question. Uh, At other times, he has knowledge that could be uh, classified only as supernatural, such as when he told Peter to go and catch a fish, and he would find the coin in the fish's mouth with which to pay Peter's temple tax as well as Jesus' temple tax. So Jesus does show supernatural knowledge of things, but at other times, in his humiliation, his humble condition, submission to the Father, other things in his humanity he does not know, and that includes here, the time of his return, he says, but only his Father in heaven. Only the Father knows. And as we think about that, and as we look at this passage together, uh, we see that Jesus is teaching this very important lesson here. Because the time of Jesus' return is unknown to all except the Father, we need to be sure that we are always ready. 
that we are always prepared for his second coming. Now, Jesus presses this point home and illustrates it by means of uh, several common images drawn pretty much from everyday life that impress on us the importance of being ready. The first image that he uses is just that of ordinary life, just the events that take place as we live our day-to-day lives. He mentions here, uh, for example, the days of Noah, verse 37. He says, just like in the days of Noah, uh, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Well, how was it in those days? Verse 38, uh, before the flood, uh, in that uh, fallen and wicked world, nevertheless, day followed day, people were doing the normal, ordinary things. They would eat, they would drink, they would marry, they'd be given in marriage. Uh, other things Jesus could have said, they, they worked, they toiled in their fields, they feasted, they had celebrations, they rested, they relaxed, slept at night, got up in the day, just the things of ordinary life going along. Day following day, you go to bed at night, fully expecting, get up the next day, the sun's up, another day is before them. And Jesus is pointing to that until something different happened. Noah entered the ark. Now, there was Noah preacher of righteousness, building this ark. Uh, maybe they took note of that. We, you know, Noah was doing, but for them, life went on. Until the day Noah entered the ark. And verse 39, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. You see, they presumed that ordinary life would just go on as it always did. Until that day, Noah entered the ark. Until that day, it started to rain. Until that day, water started gushing up. And it swept them away. It's very somber, the the tone of that text that we read earlier from Genesis, speaking more than once of the water prevailing. Water has a way of prevailing. If there's any crack it can get into, if there's any slope, water is very persistent. Water will prevail, if at all possible. And notice how it speaks of the water prevailing over the earth, over the mountains, over all life on the earth. And it swept them away. Well, Jesus says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That people go on, they just assume life will go on as it always has until... Something different happens until that glorious return of Jesus, which he already described as being like lightning in the east that is visible across the sky to the west, that every eye will see him coming. And so Jesus tells us we need to be ready because of just the the tendency that ordinary life has to lull us into a sense of complacency, to just assuming Because things have gone on this way, they will always go on this way until, until Noah went into the ark, until the water started to fall, the water started to rise, and until, Jesus says, the coming of the Son of Man. But also along with this ordinary life, he gets a little more specific in verses 40, 41. He says, then there will be two men in a field. One will be taken and the other left. One will be left. Now, Interesting statement here, and he also describes two women who are grinding out grain at the mill, uh, probably using a hand mill with a stone that would be between them, and they would 
each turn the stone 180 degrees and together rotate the stone, grind out this, this grain. One will be taken and the other left. Now, some have seen in this verse uh, a so-called secret rapture, that, that one's going to be there and the other's just going to be taken away. Well, that view or that understanding of these verses is problematic for a couple of reasons. One, you're assuming that taken means taken for salvation. But it doesn't say that. Uh, taken could mean taken for judgment. Now, I think it probably is referring to taken for salvation, but it doesn't say that. And it's not entirely clear that that's what's meant. It may be taken uh, in, in, in judgment. But the whole idea of secrecy, again, goes against the very grain of what Jesus has already spelled out, that his return will be something very public, obvious to everyone, unmistakable, unavoidable, far from secret. Every eye will see him uh, when he returns. We will know it. It will be evident. So what's the point of this verse? Well, just the separation that will take place at that time. Going along ordinary life, men out working in the field, women as they would do every day, grinding out grain. And the, the, the return of Christ would mean a distinction. It doesn't mean blessing for all people. Some will be saved, those who are in Christ. Others will be lost. And at the return of Christ, their destiny is sealed. At the return of Christ, there is no second chance. You are either in Christ at that moment or you are not. It is not as though people will see Jesus in his glory and then have the opportunity to say, well, looks like the Christians were right all along. Better believe in him quickly. No, when he appears, your destiny is set. At that point, it will be too late. One will be taken and another left. And so these two images of ordinary life, uh, the days of Noah, Men and women going about their daily activities. And so in summary, he says, verse 42, therefore, stay awake. Don't let the ordinary routine of life lull you into letting down your guard. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So that's the first image that Jesus uses to illustrate and drive home the necessity to be ready. That of just ordinary life. Don't be mistaken. Don't, don't, don't be deceived. Yes, one day follows another, but the day is coming, as the text says, uh, that those things will go on until they will come to an end. The second image that Jesus uses here is uh, maybe not such a benign one as just the activities of ordinary life. It has to do with a thief coming in the night. Look at verse 43 and 44. But know this. The master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming. He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. You know, suppose you got a note in the mail one day, uh, got an email, maybe we should say that, got an email, uh, or better yet, got a text. You know, I will be breaking to your house at 2.30 uh, tomorrow morning, 2.30 a.m., uh, signed the burglar. Um, you think, well, what would you do? I would think that uh, at 2.30 a.m. you would be uh, there, primed and ready, uh, weapon of choice in hand, maybe the phone set for speed dial to 911, uh, maybe up with all the lights blazing inside and outside. You would be prepared. You would be ready if someone had made a threat that they were going to come and break into your house at such and such a time. Problem is, most thieves, most burglars don't send you 
notice in advance. They aren't that helpful. They make it much harder. You don't know when someone might choose to come and try to break into your house. So what do you do? Well, if you have an alarm system, you make sure that that's armed and and on overnight. You lock the doors. You close windows. You basically prepare all the time. If you go out, again, lock the doors, take precautions to make sure uh, that uh, your house is as least likely to be broken into as possible. You have the mail stopped if you're going away. You have the paper stopped so they're not accumulating on the driveway, announcing to everyone that you're not at home. And so we try to be reasonably ready all the time so that no one will break into our house. Well, that's, that's the picture that Jesus has here. If the master of the house knew, he would be ready. He wouldn't let his house be broken into. Well, Jesus says the same thing applies here, verse 44. Therefore, you also, like that homeowner, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We don't know. And so we are always to be ready, always prepared to meet the Lord Jesus. Because like that thief of the night, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And that image must have made an impression on uh, Peter and later Paul, because they both describe the return of Christ that way. He'll come like a thief in the night, unexpected, catching you unawares, catching you off guard if you're not otherwise prepared. So that's the image here. Ordinary life, thief in the night, and then finally a servant in the household is the final image that Jesus uses. And we see that in verses 45 through 51. Jesus just asks the question, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Now, someone apparently in some position of of service, even leadership, I don't know that Jesus specifically was speaking with an eye toward leaders in Israel, uh, not necessarily. Uh, the point, again, has to do with, with you and me, those listening as disciples there, uh, that they were to be going about their business, that they were to be doing those things and doing them well that Jesus had given them to do until that time that he comes back. To be prepared, why? To give a good account. So that when the master comes back, they'll be found, uh, found to be carrying out their duty instead of taking advantage of his absence and doing things they ought not to be. He describes here this faithful servant, uh, serving, giving food at the proper time. Jesus says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, begins to beat his fellow servants, eats and drinks with drunkards, the master will come unexpectedly, an hour he doesn't know, and will chop him up and put him with the hypocrites in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, under the judgment of God, in the place of punishment in hell itself, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that agony, physical and emotional and spiritual, that will characterize hell. And so Jesus is basically saying here, um, we need to be prepared for his return. We need to be prepared to give an account. We don't want to take advantage of his absence to do things that we ought not to be doing. Whether it's, in this case, abusing other human beings or simply sinning in other ways, just thinking, well, he's gone. Who knows when he'll be back? He may never be back. I'll just live as I please. I'll do what I want. No, we always live 
with the awareness that Jesus could return at any moment, we don't know, and what will he find us doing, and what kind of report will we then have to give to him. You know, you think about it, kind of a good guide to biblical ethics is that you would not want to be engaged in any activity uh, that you would be ashamed of if Jesus were to return at that moment and find you. Of course, you're always in the presence of God anyway, but certainly uh, we would not want Jesus to return for that day of judgment and find us in sin against him or hurtful behavior toward other people or whatever it might be, but to be engaged in the business that he has given to us to accomplish. You know, in 1780, in May of that year in Connecticut, there were a number of days of, uh, of a strange darkness that came over that area of New England. Uh, Others who have kind of analyzed that suggest that it was brought about perhaps by uh, a combination of the smoke of forest fires, and apparently some studies of trees and the rings can date some fires back to that period. Uh, And Forest fires and fog and heavy cloud cover that led to there being Uh, A strange darkness over Connecticut. Uh, Sometimes the sky was a reddish color. Sometimes it was a yellowish color. Uh, But it got very dark, uh, strangely dark. And on May 19th particularly, it was so dark that morning that the birds grew silent. The chickens went back to their roosts. You'd see candles burning in people's homes as if it were nighttime. Uh, Candlelight burning in the windows. And the state legislature of Hartford, which was trying to meet, uh, but uh, was finding it difficult to meet for a couple of reasons. One, very practical, um, the lack of light made it difficult for them to conduct their business. But also, uh, there was a, a genuine concern that the return of Christ, that the day of judgment, was drawing near. Of course, with the unusual phenomenon going on, it was difficult for them to get their work done. With the darkness, it was difficult to get their work done. And on May 19th, it was so bad, they finally discussed whether they should just adjourn, whether they should quit and go home. And they appealed to uh, one, uh, one of their number, uh, Abraham Davenport, and asked him what, they, what he thought they ought to do. And he answered in this way. He said, I'm against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there's no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. Well, that settled it. They brought in candles. Uh, They met and actually that day uh, amended and passed a bill regulating the shad and alewife fisheries. Uh, conducting their business as usual. Well, he's absolutely right, Abraham Davenport. And by the way, John Greenleaf Whittier, the poet, poet uh, later in 1866, wrote a poem by the name of Abraham Davenport commemorating that the great day of darkness in New England and sort of uh, records Davenport's words, although elaborating on them a little bit to make them more poetic, uh, but to commemorate that day, and in fact, in 1980, the legislature of Connecticut uh, commemorated the bicentennial 
of that event, although they were meeting in February, not in May, because they weren't in session in May in that year, that time. So they did commemorate it 200 years later. But he's absolutely right. You know, you get these people who, um, you know, want to go to the mountaintops, want to quit their jobs and go wait for Jesus to come back. I can think of nothing Jesus would be more displeased with than people who drop life and go wait for him to come back. Number one, they don't know when he's coming back. Number two, Jesus here commends the servant who was going about his duty, who wasn't uh, presuming on his absence, but going about those things Jesus had given him to do. So Davenport was absolutely right. Bring the candles. Jesus returns. Let him, be, let him find us going about those duties that he has called us to do. But notice repeatedly here, be ready. Be prepared. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Well, how are we to be ready? One is to continue going about your calling, serving the Lord in those capacities, in those relationships in which he has placed you. But, of course, the most important way to be ready, to be prepared for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be reconciled to God, is to be certain that you have repented of your sins, that you have trusted in the Lord Jesus, and that in him your sins have been forgiven, and righteousness has been given to you, and that you are right with God, and that he is not your enemy, but he is indeed your heavenly Father. There is no more important way to be prepared for the return of Christ than to make sure that you truly are in Christ, and that you are ready in him to stand before God on that great day. Let's pray. Father, may it be so with every one of us in this room that we are right with you in Jesus. Father, we pray for grace to go about the calling to which you've called us, serving you well as long as you give us on this earth, until you call us home or until Jesus returns. Father, may we never be caught unawares, off guard, surprised. Help us, Father, even as we go about the routine of life, to live with the expectancy of Jesus' return. We pray it in his name. Amen.